From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. I consumed a lot of science fiction and fantasy stories growing up, and I still do. Stories like The Chronicles of Narnia and The Lord of the Rings had overt Christian themes. Others, Star Wars and the Marvel movies, for example, did if you kind of squinted at them the right way. Regardless, though, of spiritual intent, these stories shaped me, shaped my imagination, and they've stayed with me. I continue to return to them. But ultimately, my penchant for these imaginative stories laid the groundwork for my encounter with Scripture, my encounter with God in my own daily story. I was already primed to see the world as a big, fantastical place where miracles were just around the corner, where epic things can and do happen, and where themes of justice, good versus evil, really matter. I wonder how many of you out there share this experience. I was excited to find at least one other person out there who could relate. Brent Gordon, a Jesuit brother in his first year of studies, wrote a wonderful essay for the Jesuit Post a few weeks ago, where he put into writing a lot of what I've grappled with for years regarding these imaginative stories. So I invited him to share some of those reflections, how these seemingly otherworldly stories can lead us to our very real and present God today, in our world, in this moment. All right, we're here with Brother Brent Gordon. Brent, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Eric. Thank you for having me. Thanks for, for coming on. I'm really excited. You you wrote a really cool article for the Jesuit Post um, called Fantasy Literature, Imagination, and Christian Life, and it just uh, it hit all the things I love. So I, I'm excited to talk to you about it. Um, but before we dig in, maybe you can tell us, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, what you're up to, uh, where you are in, in Jesuit life. Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, first off, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed the article. Uh, I enjoyed writing it, and uh, I hope everyone else does too, enjoys reading it. So <laughs> I'm glad to have talk about it. Um, yeah, so I uh, I grew up in Florida, um, was initially drawn to uh, join the diocesan priesthood, uh, leaving Florida State University, uh, and uh, did that for three years. I was in the seminary, uh, and at the end of my third year, I was sent to Creighton in Omaha, Nebraska to study spirituality for the summer. And that's where I met the Jesuits in Ignatian spirituality. Uh, and at the end of the summer, I was uh, serious enough about it that I withdrew from the seminary, spent a year teaching middle school, and at the end of that year, joined the Jesuits. Um, I'm now in my first year of studies, uh, which is sort of the first, uh, mm, I guess, real job you have as a Jesuit after the two <laughs> years of novitiate formation. Uh, so I'm here at St. Louis uh, studying uh, mostly history. Awesome. I wonder if you might uh, just share a little bit about what um, what what does the life of a Jesuit brother look like? How is it distinct uh, in the society? Yeah, well, that's, a, that's a wonderful question. That's a whole different episode, perhaps. But uh, <laughs> probably, yeah. <laughs> just the elevator pitch. We have two floors in the elevator. Go. That's right. <laughs> uh, so uh, a Jesuit brother is first and foremost a Jesuit. Um, uh, I make the same vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience as um, my my fellow Jesuits who are studying to be priests and who are priests. Um, we go through the uh, same or very similar formation. Um, the difference is, is that a Jesuit brother, um, my focus is directly on those ministries within the society that are not sacramental. Um, so I'm not being formed to say mass or hear confessions, um, but uh, to put my emphasis on teaching, social work, outreach, things like that, the other things that Jesuits do. Wonderful. And and I wonder too, you know, so you went to Creighton University for that that summer program. What, what about Ignatian spirituality 
uh, really struck you. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you, why I'm asking the question. We've, we've had a number of, of guests over the last few weeks um, who've really uh, dug deep into Ignatian spirituality, either from an academic perspective or kind of what it means to them personally. Um, and so I'd love to just get your your take at the beginning of this episode. What, what about Ignatian spirituality really brought you about into that aha moment? It, it's funny. It's such a basic thing. And I feel like, you know, I, I, mean, I could talk about uh, Ignatian contemplation, which, of course, I love many people love. Um, I could talk about the the majus, right, that desire for more. And that was certainly part of it. But for me, it was something much uh, simpler. When I had uh, decided to join the diocesan seminary, I realized that uh, becoming a priest in the area of the country where I was, right, in the Bible Belt there, meant that I would be a parish priest. Um, I would not be a teacher. I would not be in a school, which is something that I really loved and knew I wanted to do. But I just sort of decided, well, you know, God's asking me to sacrifice that to serve him. And while I was at Creighton at that program, uh, we were uh, put on an eight-day silent retreat, um, very sort of basic, just a time to quietly be with the Lord. And I realized that I had decided God was asking me to sacrifice something, but I had never asked God his opinion on that. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> and something about the Ignatian style of retreat, Ignatian spirituality, at a most fundamental level is about talking to God and listening in response. Um, and when I was encouraged to do that, I realized God saying to me, I never told you to do that <laughs> necessarily. You didn't have to sacrifice that uh, uh, to to be with me, to serve me. And so that, would, that, that, that sold me on it right there. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that's, uh, it, like you said, it's, 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 um, it's, it's just an obvious thing in some ways. And I think it's a common mistake. I know I make in prayer you know, all too mm. frequently, you know, forgetting to ask God, um, what do you think about this? You know, just kind of going my own way. Um, no, thank you for sharing. Beautiful. You know, I, I think as you talk about Ignatian contemplation, right, that gets us right into um, a lot about, you know, how you entered into this this brief article you wrote um, at the Jesuit Post. And and briefly, the, the Jesuit Post is, is a kind of a, a collection of, of young Jesuits uh, just kind of writing the intersection of faith and politics and, and society and, and culture. Um, Anything else you would add to that in case listeners aren't familiar? No, I think that's a wonderful description. Yeah, the Jesuit Post is entirely, um, as you say, Jesuits in various stages of formation. Um, So that would be uh, Jesuits before ordination, uh, which I suppose in my case is always, but I imagine (laughs) I'll age out at some point. Um, But it's it's just a place for um, Jesuits, younger-ish Jesuits, uh, to share those things that are motivating us, that are moving us, um, points of connection with culture and society and politics, as you mentioned. Beautiful. So you talk about imaginative literature, um, and you talk about kind of fantasy genre, science fiction. Uh, I think you even said horror in some some ways. Um, uh, you know, as as this imaginative practice is a way of entering into prayer, right? Not 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 terribly dissimilar from Ignatian contemplation. So I wonder if you. Um, Kind of walk us through some of the books or the movies or comics or video games or, or whatever, you know, whatever's helped you to hone this practice or, or apply it in, in this way. Kind of what, what are you trying to drive at with this um, with this article? Yeah, first off, I'm, uh, I appreciate you mentioning the, all the many things you did, right? Books, movies, comics, video games. Uh, one of the reasons I prefer the term imaginative literature, uh, even over fantasy, it's because I think fantasy will draw to mind um, a very sort of typical, uh, you know, medieval-esque kings and dragons, which is wonderful and actually my preferred genre. Me too. Um, but <laughs> as it should be. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, uh, I think, you know, uh, science fiction and horror, um, various video game genres, things like that. 
can do the same thing. Um, and so my approach with imaginative literature is to make that point. As to what motivates me um, or what I find most appealing is very much the sort of classical fantasy. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien is the first one that comes to mind. Um, and to be honest, I'm a little embarrassed to say that because I feel like it's terribly cliche, but that's just how great Tolkien is, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, that's the first one, right? <laughs> right. Uh, and what uh, what the sort of the first connection that, that came to me in prayer with, around Tolkien was not necessarily uh, the plot devices or the story of The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, but the way he describes nature. Hmm. Um, I don't know, you know, if you if you remember from The Hobbit or the Lord of the Rings books, the way Tolkien describes the Shire, the, the softness of the rolling green hills. Um, he talks about forests like Fanghorn and he goes into this detail around the trees. He contrasts that with these ash pits of Mordor, you know, and it it's a very evocative world, right? Tolkien's writing elicits a world that is really charged with the spirit of the place itself, uh, whether it's the sort of homely, comfortable world of the Shire or, um, you know, the, the sort of battle riding plains of Rohan or places like that. And I just thought, like, that's that's the world I want to imagine. And, you know, as, as you may know, as listeners may know about Ignatian contemplation, um, a big part of that is putting yourself in the scene, right, typically with scripture. Um, and, of course, it's very important to imagine the, the other people around you, uh, Jesus himself. Um, one thing that Tolkien taught me, though, was also to pay attention to the natural world, right? What is uh, what, what is the, the natural world look like as I contemplate a biblical scene? You know, what do the trees look like? What do they smell like? What, are, what color are the rocks, right, in the desert? All these different things. Um, and And it's not only, I would say, it's not only how it affects contemplative prayer, but it, I think also language like Tolkien's or any imaginative literature, it can help us put words around prayer experiences. Uh, I remember as a novice, we were fin we finished our 30-day retreat, our 30-day silent retreat. And um, at the end of that 30 days, we had about a week off, for lack of a better word, to process and, and to sort mm -hmm. of relax. And in the course of that, I realized that some of my fellow novices had never seen the Lord of the Rings movies. So coming off the 30-day retreat, we did a marathon of the extended edition Lord of the Rings, which is essentially another 30 days. Yeah, retreat. so you needed another whole month then to get through <laughs> that. Sorry, right? another month. <laughs> uh, and in between watching the movies, we would have uh, faith-sharing sessions where we talk about our experience on the retreat. And it was amazing how as soon as we started watching those movies, every faith-sharing session, you know, guys were putting their prayer in terms of scenes from the movies, um, which drove our novice director crazy, by the way, because these guys, I mean, they had never seen Lord of the Rings. when they, So when they're having their prayer experiences, but something about it, it just gave them a language uh, to use. Uh, and I think that's a great gift in and of itself. I wonder, you know, yeah, yes, I, I agree with everything you're saying, and, and it's beautifully said. And, um, you know, so often, you know, I hear kind of this discussion of of, of the Catholic imagination, um, and maybe even, you know, Catholic authors, you know, quote, unquote, and there's kind of an academic discussion about what, what that means. Um, and the example you give, obviously, Tolkien was a Catholic, um, and, and the, the parallels to kind of Christianity are, are kind of pretty pretty there on the page not as obvious maybe as as, as c.s lewis but 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 definitely hard to miss um i wonder you know but, but you're not the way you're describing it isn't necessarily you know we're not learning about faith or or you're using kind of metaphors to kind of understand jesus figures or, or whatever um you're describing contemplation which is much more accessible i think to anybody available to anybody um outside of theology uh and also 
not necessarily determined by the author's, um, you know, uh, religious upbringing. Um, can you say a little bit more about uh, maybe maybe a different example that's that's not Tolkien? So, you know, how you would um, enter into this contemplation, um, or, or, or how these things kind of compare in your mind? The idea of of of, of writing that that has kind of overt Christianity in it um, and can and can serve the purpose that you described, and writing that is maybe very much not. Christian, but still has this contemplative, imaginative um, ethos to it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, what, for, what immediately comes to mind is Neil Gaiman. Um, oh, great. He's a yeah. contemporary writer, and uh, um, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of his, um, of course, American Gods. I've actually not seen the series, um, so I can't speak to that, but I've, but I've read Neither the book. Um, Stardust, he wrote, he wrote a wonderful novel called Stardust um, that was made into a film, uh, and he had a, has a more recent uh, book. Uh, called Ocean at the End of the Lane, uh, which is this is free publicity for Neil Gaiman, by the way. He's free. He's free to send a check to the Jesuits if he likes uh, <laughs> <laughs> for this. But I recommend all of his books. Um, and he's not, to my knowledge, Catholic. I'm certainly not overtly Christian. Um, but in his works, in American Gods, for example, very briefly and with no spoilers, because I want everyone to read the book. Um, the setting is is an America, is it a contemporary America? in which uh, the various waves of people who've come to this, this country bring with them their old gods, right? Their old beliefs, superstitions. And those um, figures take on actual life uh, uh, in America. And they, they're more or less powerful regarding the number, you know, how much faith people have in them or how often their stories get told. Um, on that basic level, right, what Gaiman is, is proposing in American Gods is, is a world that is... I keep going back to this phrase, charged with the grandeur of God, right? As, as Robert Manley Hopkins would say, that there is, there is a wildness, there is a, a power to our stories. These things live with us. They take on lives of their own. They impact us. They, ha they have meaning. Uh, and you mentioned the Catholic imagination. And to me, the Catholic imagination, whether one is Catholic or not, is a belief in a world that has meaning, right? That there, there is nothing extraneous, uh, in life, right? From, you know, from the you know, something, you know, as, as poetic as a tree to something as complicated as our own uh, life experiences. Um, all of these things uh, speak to us and have meaning for us and are relevant. At the, at the end of the day, the Catholic imagination is about saying that you are relevant and the world is relevant. I love that. That's a great... Um... It's a great kind of uh, easy definition. And, and you're also making, as you describe these books, you're making me think, you know, it's, uh, you know, so often when I sit down, uh, you know, I have on my, my left the spiritual reading uh, du jour and I have my, you know, fantasy book and, and, and maybe they don't need to be different books sometimes. Um, you know, I know, I know that this article that you've, that you've written for the Jesuit Post um, is the launch of a series, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, what you're hoping to accomplish in that series. You know, what, are you going to be the one writing all of them? Are you inviting other voices? And how, how do you see this um, unfolding over the, uh, the next several months or whatever, whatever your date is? Yeah, um, so the, the series is, uh, we're sort of calling right now Fantasy, Fiction, and Faith, um, to make it alliterative, right? We want to. <laughs> That's what you need. It's necessary. <laughs> and um, and as of right now, I'm the only writer. Um, I'm certainly, I certainly hope other uh, Jesuits who maybe write for the Post or who haven't written for the Post yet um, are inspired to share something. I'd certainly invite them to. Um, one thing I mentioned in this in this article at the end is um, for readers, by all means, to send in suggestions of, of movies, books, uh, video games, anything that has moved them. Um, to help have them be part of the conversation in that way. In terms of the inspiration for the series, uh, 
actually, it's very selfish. I just personally enjoy talking about it. Um, I enjoy uh, uh, sharing with other people about it and sharing my views on this. So first off, it's for me. All right. There you <laughs> but, go. Audience of one. You know your audience, audience well. Audience of one. Yeah. <laughs> At least one person's enjoying it. Um, but but on a deeper level, I mean, if you think about the uh, the popularity of things like the Star Wars franchise and the Mandalorian, right, that comes out from that, if you think about the the Marvel Cinematic Universe and how popular that continues to be in, in, in various guises, uh, these types of stories, fantasy is, I think, just it's just popular. Um, I, I think most of us have, you know, whether we'd call it fantasy or not, or, or whether it's literature or not, whether it's written books or not. Um, there's an appeal of these sorts of worlds, of this sort of um, imaginative world building. And so I want to speak to that, and, and I want to invite others to, to think about that. And as you said, um, if you compare like our spiritual reading with the, with the fantasy book we're reading for fun, think about ways in which both of those are vehicles to God. They're, both of those are vehicles um, for God to speak to us and for us to speak to God. Um, and you know, not not to make every not that everything has to become uh, overtly religious necessarily, um, but at the very least, everything can become more imaginative. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a fair challenge. I wonder, you know, um, I, I don't know if this is your sense. My, my sense is over the last several years, um, you know, there was such a divide in the culture between you know fantasy or science fiction or whatever it was was kind of for like one group of people, and everybody else did kind of like mainstream you know, media consumption. And and now, you know, I'm thinking this this was particularly true with Game of Thrones, this was particularly true with uh, The Walking Dead. Um, you know, they sort of, you know, blur a little bit and, and it, the, the audience grew. You know, people that never would have read or watched The Lord of the Rings loved Game of Thrones. You know, I think The Mandalorian, you, you mentioned The Mandalorian, has, has an appeal well beyond your typical Star Wars um, fans. Uh, and even now with, you know, with WandaVision and, and, and the Marvel, mm -hmm. my, my wife is really enjoying WandaVision, but, but didn't, really care much for any of the other Marvel movies. So what do you think is happening? Um, you know, is our imagination growing? Is it shrinking? What, what, do you have any sense of maybe what's happening in, in culture writ large that's um, blurring these, these, these different formats? Or maybe it's just all in my mind. <laughs> well, if it is all in your mind, it's all in all of our minds, right? So Perfect. you're in, you're in good company at least, or company anyway. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's a great question. Um, and it does feel different, right? It, it wasn't that long ago, like you said, where, um, you know, only, only perhaps the sort of kids I hung out with in high school would be watching Lord of the Rings and and uh, talking about these things. And now it's it's become uh, acceptable uh, as adults to to watch those shows, um, if not read the books. Although I think it uh, certainly I mentioned Game of Thrones. I mean, that certainly drove a lot of uh, attention and renewed interest in George R. R. Martin's work. Uh, I I think it. You know, there's a, there's an aspect of it that maybe because these television shows are being made, it's given us um, as adults maybe permission to mm. to to openly express enjoyment for these things. Um, this is a very long-standing and kind of pernicious thought about fairy tales, fantasy, imagination that that it's for children. Uh, uh, and I mean, this is something that uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about in letters, Tolkien wrote about in letters, G.K. Chesterton wrote about. Um, so it goes back quite a ways. Uh, but this idea that, you know, only children sort of engage in this type of thing. And once you get older and you're an adult, you have more serious real world things to deal with. Um, and at the very at, at the most, you would do these sorts of things to escape right from the pressures of of your, your adult world. Uh, and now what we're kind of seeing with the television and movie, uh, movies that you mentioned, 
uh, is almost a renaissance of just well done things. Uh, I've, I've also been watching WandaVision and, and whether you like Marvel or not, it's just well done. I mean, it's a well written story. Um, the acting is very good. Um, and so it, it feels okay as an adult to like that. Um, but I think it speaks to something that we've always had. Yeah, no, I, I think what you said, you know, it's a well done story. I mean, I think that's, that's our comment every week after we watch WandaVision, um, just to make it very specific. You know, it's, it's well done. It's, it's, it's good to watch visually, but the story is compelling. And I think the story, uh, was compelling in Game of Thrones, at least maybe till the very end there. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, I think some of the new stuff they're doing with Star Wars, you know, these are these are just good stories. And I think it, it probably speaks to the, uh, you know, the, the, the value, the importance of, of story in in our lives and our ability to see and connect with the stories at the most basic level. Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things I, I really liked with your uh, in your article was uh, you talked about the ar- arguments against imaginative literature um, mm-hmm. that that Christians or people of faith um kind of level. Uh, and I wonder if you could, uh, you know, kind of dig into those a little bit. And, and if you had any sort of, you know, personal experience with that or person, it, it seemed to me that you um, had, had kind of fought these battles before. So I wonder if you could just share a little bit of your reflections on, on why it, it is okay for us as people of faith to, to dig into these kinds of things. Sure. I, I think, um, you know, I, I'm of an age that I sort of, I sort of grew up with Harry Potter um, literally in the sense that I grew up with the books, but also I'm of the age that Harry Potter was in the books. Um, and, you know, J.K. Rowling released pretty much one a year. Um, and so, you know, I, I literally went from 11 to 16, 17 with, uh, with Harry Potter. And I remember when those, first, those books came out, um, and it, especially when the movie started, I think the movie started about three years later than the books, if I'm remembering correctly. But in both cases, there was an argument amongst uh, Christians, uh, including uh, family members of mine uh, and uh, friends of mine, uh, very devout Christian families, that were just very off put by the witchcraft thing. Right? There was there was this big uh, concern that Harry Potter uh, inspired uh, witchcraft or glorified witchcraft or, or this or these sorts of things. And um, and again, you know, not uh, these are not fanatical people. Um, they're not uh, they, they don't mean poorly. Um, but there was just a sort of fear around that, around that topic and around, you know, what sort of things were these books encouraging? Uh, I, I, I'm, I myself am a convert to the faith. I grew up in a Southern Baptist household, so not to give people a, uh, uh, a view of, of Southern Baptist maybe. But um, uh, my uncle, is, for example, is a Southern Baptist minister. And, and, you know, my cousins were initially not allowed to read Harry Potter for this reason. But by the time the movie came out, we were all going as an extended family to seeing it. So, so at least in one sort of family example, um, time won out, exposure won out, and there was a realization that okay, not that you know we want anyone to go off and you know I don't know sacrifice animals to the devil or anything Oof. like that. But, but you know that's bad. I'm against that. But, we don't condone um, that on this on this podcast. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. No, I don't. No, as a Jesuit, I do not condone <laughs> sacrificing animals. Um, but but Harry Potter's okay, right? And that the the story of, of friendship, of good triumphing over evil, of self sacrifice that come through in the Harry Potter franchise as an example, uh, speak to something that's both very true and very Christian. Um, and I think that that people saw that uh, personally as I got older, and in fact even as I entered the Jesuits and and I started um, meeting people um, from a diff- from a different perspective, from a from a different uh, walk of life who 
weren't opposed to something like Harry Potter because of the witchcraft, but were opposed to it as a form of escapism. And this is another heavy charge that fantasy and imaginative literature tend to get. And it's that, you know, the world is, is, uh, has so many problems. There's so many real people suffering that why should we spend time escaping into fantasy worlds? But how is that helping us address the problems of the day? And here the argument is that maybe it's okay for children because children need an escape from the, from, from the difficult world that we're in. But for serious adults, uh, for Christians who are trying to, to improve the world, to spread the gospel, uh, that this is not an appropriate pastime. And that's a little bit harder of a critique, isn't it, right? That we can say, well, you know, I mean, it's hard to argue. I mean, there are a lot of real problems in the world. But my response to that is that, you know, we're asked to help realize, all of us as Christians, and, and I would argue all people of goodwill, are called to, rec to realize the kingdom of heaven on earth, right? Uh, we call the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, of peace, um, whichever you'd like to say. But you have to imagine something before you can attain it. You have to think, what does such a world look like? Right? How do we improve the world? Um, and if we cut off Im imagining things that aren't real, I mean, can we, I, I, we know there's not a castle in Scotland in which 11-year-old witches and wizards are trained uh, to fight a wizarding version of Hitler. I'm sorry to any <laughs> listeners that this is news to, but... but you know, it's a crushing blow to many of our listeners, I think, blow. but yeah. they'll do yeah. their best. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, you know, we know that's not, that's not literally real. And so I don't think anyone's in danger of being confused or distracted by that. Um, but how can imagining that, how can being inspired by that help lead to real world change? And I think it can. I think it can. The, the other argument, you know, if people are concerned about, um, you know, again, it's especially around witchcraft, you see wizards or, or things like that in, in novels, um, I would just say that again, you know, God is in charge of all of this. God, you know, everything is under God's purview. God gave us our imaginations for crying out loud. And, and in that sense, everything can be used. Um, this, is, this is the Jesuit in me, right? Everything can be used. Uh, to draw closer to God. And God gave it to us for that very purpose. Yeah, you've convinced me. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I uh, two thoughts as you were speaking. You know, I, I think one, that the temptation that like we should we should only focus on, um, you know, the, the, the problems of the world. I mean, there, there are so many problems. As someone who consumes a lot of news podcasts, I know that constantly you know, it's, 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 it's tiring. It weighs you down. It's not bad. I don't think to, to, like you said, expand your imagination elsewhere. And the other thing that the other quote, I don't, I think this is often misattributed to Chesterton. I don't actually know who is, who spoke it. Maybe, you know, the one where it says, um, uh, we don't, we don't talk about dragons because dragons are real. We talk about dragons so that people learn that they can be slayed. What, you know what, how, how does that quote go? Do you know that quote? Yes, that's, um, it's funny. I actually, I know that quote from Neil Gaiman and he attributes it to GK Chesterton, but I think it's one of those things that sort of floats in the ether. Right. Uh, yes. it's, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 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 fairy tales are not real. They're more than real, not because they say dragons exist, but because they say dragons can be defeated. Fantastic. Yeah, th there, that's exactly it. Wow, right off the top of your head. That was that was good. For <laughs> listeners, we had no notes on that. On that. Um, um, but, you know, I, I remember, you know, when, when my um, before my, my first daughter was my eldest daughter, I guess, was was born. Um, I wanted to get that like on the wall in her mm. in her uh, in her room. Um, we did not end up doing that. But um, so I was looking for like posters and things and, and all the images were so um, very, very violent, you know, just you know, mm. slaying dragons. And then I found this one image um, and it was like a little it was like a little girl on sitting next to a dragon. And I was like, wow, like that to me was that expansion of, of the imagination. Like not only mm. did it did it take the sense of of 
we have to tell stories that can help us discover the way to overcome those difficulties in life, um, but but also to be surprised in the outcome. Um, and that that image of this like small child sitting next to like sharing ice cream or whatever it was with this dragon just really struck me as I again as I was preparing for um, for the birth of my of my my daughter. But um, again, I just think that that kind of gets to some of what you were describing this this expansion of the imagination um, and and uh, you know allowing again allowing God to su- to surprise us. Um, you know, just kind of getting right off of that, you, you talk a lot about wonder. Um, how do you see the imaginative imaginative literature evoking wonder um, in ways that, that I think perhaps some of those more realistic fiction can't. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. I mean, wonder, and I say this in the article, right, that, that wonder I think is so important because it, it teaches us humility uh, in the world uh, and humility, of course, leads to gratitude, but you know what, wonder at the world is something that I think we can have any literature can evoke. I mean, I, I don't want to poo poo sort of uh, uh, realistic literature, you know, um, Either. I think, though, that imaginative literature can help sort of train us uh, in ways that, that realistic fiction isn't as good at doing um, and give us sort of the, the eyes of wonder that we can read then realistic literature and, and draw similar lessons from it. Uh, and I mean, at the end of the day, it, it does come to, you know, maybe when we're kids and we start reading these sorts of stories, we think, OK, dragons are real. Like, this is a problem. Like, I need to, you know, I need to get ready to fight. I mean, I, I felt that as a kid, you know, I. There, there were a couple of years I had to sleep with like a plastic sword, you know, just in case, you know, uh, a, a dragon case. attack. Uh, they never did because um, I had a sword that's, probably. That's, I mean, that's why, yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, but, you know, fairly early on, I think we come to that, that sort of cognitive dissonance, you know, even as children about, okay, even if dragons are real, they don't seem to be a problem in my area, <laughs> you know. And so, um, so how do we make sense of that and balance that out? And uh, children, I think, are very good at this, by the way. I think we, I don't think we give them enough credit um, for being able to draw lessons from something that they, they know is not literally true, or at least not in the way that, um, that other things are true, that you know, true things are true. Um, but yeah, I, the fantasy literature, it, it helps create that sense. It helps create that sense of, if I can look at, at something in the world and imagine fairies are there, right? Or if I can imagine um, a unicorn is going to come out from behind a tree or a dragon is going to swoop down from the sky, it it gives a sense of urgency in the world. Uh, and again, that urgency is, leads to meaning. It gives a sense that like this is this this is a this is another Chesterton quote, right? That the world is a very strange place, um, but it's wonderful, right? Like it, it could have been very boring. You know, the world, uh, God could have made the world in black and white. Hmm. But it's in vibrant color, <laughs> you know, and, and imaginative literature uh, helps remind us of that so that then we read something like, you know, Charles Dickens or Jane Austen, which is, you know, is fiction, although it's realistic. Um, suddenly it takes on a more meaningful tone for us as well. And it points to um, something else that you, you were you were, um getting at in the article this idea of 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 grasping at kind of the greatness of god like getting you know knowing that we can't get there but but trying to train the muscle right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um can you say more about about that because i I love that idea too again just just how how big can it go almost well (laughs) that's uh you know i I hopefully this is not a, a a controversial opinion um and uh uh, but, but God is very, very big. Right? God is, you <laughs> I know. Think you're okay. Uh, yeah, good. All right, good. Uh, you know, carry uh, on. Don't sacrifice animals. Uh, but <laughs> God is very, very big, uh, and and the world, and consequently, 
God's creation is very, very big, larger than than we can understand. You know, I mean, I, Scripture talks about the, the privileged place that we as human beings have made in the image and likeness of God. Right. One of the Psalms says that that, you know, he made us, you know, just a little less than the or he's made us greater than the angels, ultimately. Right. Through Christ. But even that, even that privileged place, we can't grasp the mysteries even of the natural world. Not entirely. We get better and we get closer and closer and closer. Um, but it's, it's like that spiral, right, where we keep going around and around and we get a little bit better. We get a little bit closer, but we never quite get it. And if that's just the natural world, I mean, it's it's unimaginable <laughs> the world beyond that. Right. The, what God has in store for us uh, for eternity. That's that's ultimately what's at stake. I mean, and I think like to go back to the question about, um, you know, what do I hope? The series on TJP will uh, will provide, or at least the conversation that will elicit from it, it's that we don't need to limit ourselves uh, to whatever limitations the natural world has, because the natural world is actually far more spectacular than we think and can even conceive of. Um, and to have wonder at that, to have appreciation for that, to have humility in the face of that, um, that puts us, I think, in the exact right frame of reference to interact with a God who is both so beyond and so big and yet so intimate and so close to each one of us. It seems like a great uh, way to, to think about contemplation and action, right? Mm. That, that I, I love what you said about that urgency too, um, that, that there's an urgent urgency to, to move and to, to, to go deeper and, and discover more. I, um, I just want to ask one, one last question. Uh, you know, you talk about fairy tales at the beginning Um and uh, certainly they're not only for children. Uh, you know, and one of the things that I am always fascinated by about fairy tales is, is that they, uh, you know, there's all these different versions, different cultures, you know, responding to time and place. And, um, um, but they're ultimately kind of pointing at um, some nugget kind of buried in that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wonder if there's something to be said there um, for the way we approach the stories of our own faith, something to be learned from this um, fairy tale approach, if you will. Um, that, 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 uh, you know, the ability to, um, see the same story told very differently and still dig in. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, no, absolutely. Um, th- this is something I, I, I wish, uh, you know, I saw more, but I, I see some, there, there, there are some good, um, uh, you know, YouTube channels and, and, and podcasts and, and things where, uh, you start to see the, the Bible engaged with and the stories in the Bible engaged with in a more active way. But there, there's something I think we've sort of developed, uh, at, at least in the, in the Western church, um, that we're sort of nervous around this, right? We're sort of nervous around um, telling Bible stories and going off script, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and, 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 it, and it's a fear that, that I don't think we necessarily need to have. Um, I think that, uh, you know, myself growing up, uh, you know, I mean, I, I knew this, I learned, heard the stories of Noah, right, and the, the ark and the animals, um, I, the story of Abraham with Isaac and the sacrifice of Isaac, which maybe I shouldn't have been told as a child, but, <laughs> but I was anyway. Um, the great stories about David and Solomon, uh, Samson with the long hair, you know, all these things, that, those were told to me long before I could ever read. Right. And long before I, I, I had the interest uh, to do biblical exegesis on breaking down the original Hebrew or the Greek, which is very worthwhile and, and worth doing. But even there, there's sort of a fear of making those stories um, timely, of, of putting ourselves in those stories. 
Um, and the sad thing is that can sort of make them feel removed, right? And by contrast, uh, if you watch Iron Man, or, or perhaps more more timely, even Spider Man, I think for 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 uh, kids right now, uh, that seems so real and timely, right? You know, the the the, the latest batch of Spider Man movies take place in in the current day, right? In, in the modern world, um, with starring a kid who could be any of the, any of us. Well, not us maybe but younger people <laughs> right, right yeah <laughs> minus a uh, few years minus a few years and why not why not tell bible stories in that vein um i know i mean this is i mean there's no there's no substitute for 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 the scripture i don't mean to imply that but but to to make those stories part of our collective imagination in a way that they once were i mean i think we sort of forget that particularly throughout the old testament um, these stories were told, you know, from parent to child for generations before they were ever written down. Um, the story, I mean, the, sto- the stories of Christ, the same way. Um, I mean, th- these were the stories of a people collectively, um, not just the sort of uh, direct historical recounting of what one guy with long hair and who was really strong did you know, five thousand years ago, um, but of what it means to be, uh, in the case of Samson, uh, to be a Jew, to be an Israelite. Um, and it, and it gives meaning to those people. It gives meaning to us. Um, I've forgotten the original question. I apologize. No, I, I think you got there. I think you got there. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I, yeah, no, I think you got there. The, it, it speaks to Ignatian contemplation, right? Imaginative mm-hmm. prayer, putting yourself in the story. And, um, I, I think, I think you, I think you struck the right balance, you know, that, that historical, historical truth is, is important. You know, like, you know, you can't just make up your own gospel story, but, but allowing yourself the ability to, to, to sink in there and, and, and see how is it relevant to me today? What is, what is going on? What's, you know, what is Jesus inviting me to do through these, these stories that, you know, are, are timeless in, in so many ways. I love that you use the word timeless and the stories are, and it's important for us to remember that timeless doesn't just mean you know, oh, it was it was very long ago, or it's always relevant, but it also means that every time is relevant for it. Well, Brent, this was a ton of fun. Um, I will uh, I'll link for our listeners to your article uh, in the show notes. But um, I'm looking forward to the rest of the series. Wonderful! Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leipsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.